Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Thank you, Mr. Intro Man. Yeah, it's Brendan here with Mark, and it is the week ending of, gee, time flies, Mark, it's almost the end of February, the 23rd of February 2018. And um, yeah, you've had a pretty busy few days, haven't you, Mark, as we were talking off air? What have you been up to? I've been um, in my alter ego. I spend a bit of time down in Sydney at the um, at the New South Wales Veterinary Board. So I've been involved in meetings down in Sydney over the last couple of days, and uh, yeah, it has been a little bit um, gets intense sometimes, Brendan. I don't think I know you know my thoughts on this, but I I, I don't think I could cope with doing um, some of the vet board um, sort of. Um, um, meetings and that and um, listening to the hearings of um, malpractice into veterinary surgeons and I think it'll be a tough job to do um, sifting through all that and um, um, doing it without being stressed out but I think you did mention at one stage that they have a really good backup system to um, to help you with the emotional support um, with, with dealing with all the cases and um, um, helping you along and, and, and also um, I think technical support, as in um, um, support with um, helping you get through all the work you have to do. Because by the sound of it, some of the meetings are quite quite long. Um, so yeah, how do you survive with it, Mark? It, it's um, it's it's exactly as you say. It's uh, one of those things that rather uh, I, I, pay, I pay particular tri- a tribute to your forethought because I approach the whole thing maybe a little bit arrogantly that I wouldn't, you know, I would be able to. Um, process these the complaints in particular but also some of the other um, issues that the board has to deal with um, and I'd have no trouble coming to a decision but um, of course it's never like that and um, and it is you know a whole lot of grey areas and trying to pay respect to the concerns of the client and the efforts of the vet it, it does get um, emotionally draining I definitely find that but I have to uh um, as well as pay credit to you, pay credit to the the, um, the New South Wales board because they do an excellent job of rotating people through those more stressful parts of the the board work and um, paying attention to how they're coping and uh, having the opportunity to debrief at times. And uh, yeah, I, I feel um, uh, very blessed. Uh, I think one of the things uh, when I started being involved with the board, I thought, oh, this is a wonderful way for me to give back to the profession that's given me so much but in the usual way of these things it's turned out that um the whole process has given me much more um than i could ever give back so um it is a good thing to do but like you say it uh, does take a um uh, it is a fair commitment there's no it's not one of those um things that you can be involved in and and uh, just devote a little bit of time. You know, in fact, I think of it a little bit like our podcast, that um, you, it's a um, it's a commitment and you've got to spend some time doing it. So I'm very glad that you do spend some time doing it and preparing me so that um, the whole thing sounds really good, Brendan. <laughs> well, as I said, I don't think... I, 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 yeah, I think you have to be a special sort of person to be able to cope with that sort of thing. And um, I, I think I'd potentially struggle if I got asked to be on a vet board. But you never know. When I get even more old and cranky, um, I might end up doing something like that. Um, um, for those of you who are new listeners or subscribers, and we've had a fair few over the last um, week or so with um, a couple of um, shout-outs to our our podcast on various media. Um, I'm with a couple of Facebook sites for the Australian Veterinary Association, to, so thanks for that. Um, and um, hello to our listener, and, I, and I'm not saying plural there, Mark, our listener in Zambia. We have one listener in Zambia in um, in Africa, so hello to him or her, and um, keep subscribing. And um, don't forget to visit our website, vetgurus.com, to have a look at the show notes, and we've got some interesting 
Quick little news articles we're going to rip through now, Mark, before we get on to an interesting um, comment from one of our listeners, an email or a message we got from um, our um, one of our listeners, which will a bit of a challenging um, comment from them, um, I think. So um, we'll probably take a few minutes to talk about that one. But the first news story I'll take, Mark, and it's a pretty quick one that I'm going to do, and guess what? It's a photography one, and it is the winners of the wildlife photo um, 2017 wildlife photo competition has been announced and there's various categories but all i'm going to mention is the overall winner is an absolutely stunning photo of a of a frog looking up sitting on a leaf looking up at the milky way um and it's a highly technical photo with the methods he used there mark we won't i won't go into it for the listeners but you'll you'll appreciate with the, the using focus shifting and aperture shifting and um trying to get a bit of time lapse of the milky way there as well and, and also flash um but it's an amazing photo um so um and that's just the overall winner and that was in the um in the um in the category of just having a look um environment habitats and landscape category um but for those of you who want to look at all the finalists there um it's wildlifephoto.com and it's um yeah there's some amazing photos and i look at those photos and i think gee um the photos i've taken nothing um compared with those but i don't do it to win competitions although looking at the competition there it was a twelve thousand dollar um adventure holiday to the galapagos islands is what the um overall winner won so um so that would have been fantastic to win um so um yeah but i mainly do it to to relax um taking the photos and uh, i think you do as well so anyway that's the um the overall winners of the 2017 wildlife photo um website um for um for people to view um i think you've got an interesting quite fun um news item number two mark about a cow um yes this um is uh, one that particularly caught my eye <laughs> um and caught caught my eye for um uh well for a couple of reasons at the end of the article. Um, and so it's a story in uh, our Mother Nature Network, one of our favourite um, uh, spots to pick up these stories, Christian Contraneo. Um, and uh, he's talking about a, um, a beautiful cow that um, has escaped um, from her farm in Poland um, and joined up with a um, uh, um, a herd of wild bison. Um, and initially, uh, um, before the winter, um, the, the, uh, the cow was noted by bird watchers, no less. Um, and, um, and it was assumed that she would, uh, uh, being a domestic animal that, um, the horrible cold winter that, um, those animals had to go through that she might not make it. But, um, uh, despite the fact that, um, she, well, obviously she was built for um, the difficult elements of a Polish winter um, because in the spring the director of the Mammal Research Institute um, came across the very same cow, still healthy, well-fed and living with the bison. Um, so it raises a whole lot of um, really interesting points, not least of which is um, that they're worried about her welfare because um, it's quite possible she'll be mated um, and then have a, um, uh, a very large fetus, which may lead to um, uh, a difficult birth and possibly um, a life-threatening problem. So um, so it is really uh, um, uh, uh, an event that has a whole a lot of layers of problems, um, uh, but it's, um, I don't know, it's sort of inspiring in a way to see her break out of her bonds and take up with the wild animals and live the life. <laughs> live the life. Um, um, yeah, one of the interesting things I were talking about near the end of that article is about the possibility that she end up, might, yeah, she might end up um, potentially mating um, with those bison and they were concerned that it will, will um, 
lead to hybrids um, of the bison and that may not be good things. But so whether or not her days are numbered and somebody decides to do something pretty drastic with her or they let her live her life out with those bison, we'll have to um, have to stay tuned, I think. We'll have to try and follow that one. And by the look of it, there's some sort of Facebook page for that one as well. But we will put a link to the original article on our website too. So, yeah, cow makes a bold bid for freedom and joins a herd of wild bison is the is the um, tagline for that one. Um, well, I've got another silly fun one that, um, as usual, that I find, and that's um, that they've found a completely new form of 3D vision in praying mantises. Um, and um, I find it quite um, funny. They've actually got a little video here of the praying mantises, and what they ended up doing is attaching little glasses, believe it or not, and um, um, onto the um, praying mantises with beeswax. Um, so you can imagine they're pretty miniature um, 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 glasses they put on there to so that they can measure the 3D um, um, vision of these um, particular praying mantises. And in fact, on the on the website, and the, I think this is another link from the Mother Nature Network as well, um, they have a little short video there of the little testing they done of these praying mantises where they had them looking at a screen. Um, um, a, a simulated insects on the moving on a screen and um, they were shown 2D pictures um, of insects and they didn't try and catch them but as soon as they sw- switched over the movies to 3D um, the insects seemed to float in front of the screen um, so the mantis stuck out struck out as if, if they thought it was a prey item so um, and then they've spent a little bit more time with their research and working out that the um, the actual way um, mantises um, see 3D is completely different than um, than any other um, any other um, um, insects or animals and and including humans so yeah um what the future that will be but um you know i think 3d tellies um were a bit of a craze weren't they for a while um and not too many people um buy the old 3d tellies at home anymore for um because of the fact um people are don't think could be bothered wearing the 3D glasses um, very often. And I, I'd expect that the mantises aren't too um, happy having these little beeswax 3D um, glasses stuck on their eyes as well. But, yeah, quite an interesting little – the things people do, I could imagine um, going to a dinner party if you were that um, – you were that little um, research scientist and um, somebody was asking you, what do you do? And this was at Newcastle um, Newcastle U- University in England um, and you'd be telling people, oh, well, I've just stuck um, little little glasses on mantises um, is what I do for a living um, and I've just spent the last few years doing that. Um, so anyway, but each, each person to their own, I suppose. <laughs> um, so that's my fun little news story for the week and um, that's the only three news stories we had because we wanted to have a talk in a little bit more detail, didn't we? about this um, message we got from one of our subscribers and um, I think you were going to um, just read out the um, main parts of it, Mark, and then we'd have a little bit of a discussion on it. Well, I was going to start with uh, um, a, uh, uh, an invitation, uh, a celebration of someone having written to us on our Facebook page, um, but also an invitation for anyone who has a uh, a question or an um, issue they'd like us to discuss to take advantage of that form of communication. Um, and, and so we're particularly pleased that Nikki has taken the time to send us a, um, a message and I'll just read it for you and then we'll have a bit of a talk about some of the questions in it. Hi, guys. Uh, I recently stumbled across your podcast via an AVA link on my Facebook and I'm really enjoying it so far. Of course. I just have a general question or conundrum regarding exotic animal work. I absolutely love birds and working with them, but in the clinic setting, I become really conflicted about the ethics of keeping birds and reptiles as pets. I keep going back and forth between wanting to provide owners with good advice about care for these animals, but also thinking in my mind that many of these animals shouldn't be pets in the first place. It's doing my head in. Is this something you guys have struggled with previously? And do you have any tips or uh, potential podcast episodes for reconciling this ethical conflict? So uh, This is uh, from Nikki. So... Um, I thought this would be an excellent opportunity for because uh, uh, this uh, message struck a particular chord for me because um, I, I think that as um, 
and probably also speaks to the maturity of recent graduates. Um, I didn't uh, think about a lot of these things because I, as a new graduate, I was probably just barely trying to make sure I was across all the medical and surgical stuff I needed to know. Um, but particularly more recently, um, these sorts of questions, the sorts of things that are uh, worrying Nikki, have been increasingly worrying me. Um, I do become uh, very conflicted about um, about the way that people um, keep uh, these animals. Um, and um, and I said, even to the point, uh, not, not just to restrict it, particularly it struck me with birds, um, uh, reptiles to a certain extent, but even dogs and cats, I um, sometimes struggle with the relationship that people have with them and the manner of care they give. Um, and part of the conflict for me is that... Um, a lot of the time, I'll, I'll, I, um, while removing all names and identifying um, uh, features, um, I've got some great clients who have some beautiful, beautiful um, large cockatoos, and um, and um, those people. Uh, I've got one particular client who has a dedicated room in their house. Um, they have a connection from that room to an outdoor aviary. Um, they uh, have spent. Um, in excess of sixty thousand dollars, arranging the the um, the Avrian room so that it maximised the benefit to the bird, um, and and still I catch myself doing physical examinations on this bird. The, the it's a female bird, and she has intermittent reproductive tract problems, um, and despite you know just about a full time effort at um, trying to keep her. Uh, um, entertained uh, to provide environmental enrichment of the very highest standard, I still wonder about um, the quality of life at times. So I completely understand um, the questions that um, that Nikki is asking herself and in turn is asking Brendan and I. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I same with me. I think I struggle with it um, more and more as I'm as I'm say, as I'm as I'm getting more older and crankier. Um, and and yeah, it, it's difficult. And, and I think it runs the whole gamut of, of of all the species that I see. Um, yeah, the, the the birds definitely. Um, I, I've always struggled with the thought of keeping um, birds um, as pets or in captivity, um, considering the sort of range that they'll be um, normally flying over. Um, um, I suppose we should talk about the flightless birds as well. Um, and I've never kept a bird as a pet myself probably because of that that particular reason and I've always struggled with it. But even more so with the reptiles, the small mammals, um, yeah, the dogs and cats as well. Um, and what's the answer to it? I have no idea. The good thing is we are starting to get a lot more people talking about it and, and the, the, the people that are involved with ethics, ethics as well and, and doing further studies on ethics in animals and and you know the obvious one to to you and person um, that we both know is Anne um, Fawcett, who does a lot of works with ethics, and and she's I think we reviewed her her book at one stage, of Veterinary Ethics: Navigating Tough Cases, um, which was a 2017 textbook. But um, as soon as I saw this message from from Nikki, I, I pulled up um, the um, the paper of um, a little presentation Anne. Um, gave at the uh, the uh, conference last year, I think, and it was literally called the Ethics of Exotics um, from the Australian Veterinary Association um, conference. So I'm going to pull out a little bit of um, a couple of the lines she has from that because I think she um, it was a fantastic presentation. I, I can't remember whether you were you were there as well, Mark. Um, um, with that and she was mainly talking about reptiles and the ethics of keeping reptiles as pets but she broadened it to the keeping of any unusual pets um, as well or exotic pets and um, yeah reading from her paper there um, uh, let's have a look um, some scholars have questioned whether the keeping of reptiles is ethical at all um, for example a UK study found that the mortality rate of captive reptiles and I was quite shock shocked by this in homes was 75% within the first 12 months um, a subsequent study found the rate to be dramatically lower 
um, 3.6%, um, a spectacular range with both findings vigorously challenged by the authors, and I think they had a big slinging match between themselves. Um, but certainly, um, and again, quoting for Man's paper, certainly any industry with mortality rates as high as the upper range requires serious review, um, but there's a distinct lack of data, um, and there's a lot more interest in, in getting some hard information um, about um, how these animals survive and how well they survive in, let alone... Um, the ethics of actually keeping them um, and and we always worry about um, poor husbandry obviously with, with, with the unusual pets there but um, even with um, you know jumping around a little bit here I always um, I'm always worried about the supposed um, minimum cage requirements for a lot of species that are kept and um, for some species like reptiles for instance um, um, depending on the region that that somebody may um, live in, that the requirements may only be a very small enclosure to keep that reptile in just enough so it can co coil up uh, um, um, for a snake, for instance. Um, and whether we regard that as ethically adequate um, is is another matter. And I, I, I'm, I'm increasingly questioning um, whether or not we're, we're doing the right things by keeping these animals as pets. And, and it's tricky. So should we be treating them? Should we be looking after them and getting back to to Nikki's um, comments about it's doing my head in, um, it often does my head in as well. Um, and um, I try to concentrate on what she was talking about, um, what she mentioned about, yeah, trying as a veterinarian to provide the best of care for these animals because we know um, with a large percentage of them it's inadequate husbandry and improper care or lack of information, ignorance um, on behalf of the client that they just don't know that they're not looking after the patient correctly that I really tend to concentrate on. Um, and I do spend, I must admit, a lot more time recently over the last year or so in um, talking to clients about environmental enrichment for their pets um, and providing an environment and enclosure um, and that that gives that animal time to do nice rabbity things or snaky things and to to spend a bit of time um, exploring the enclosure um, potentially searching for food items um, lots of tunnels and, and 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 areas for a ferret to sort of crawl around in for instance um, rabbits that are allowed outside of the enclosure um, for, for free play several hours a day that all those sorts of things so I, I must admit I spend a lot more time talking about that than I used to in the past um, and because I think think the ethics and the welfare of that particular animal and, and the mind of that particular animal needs to to be addressed rather than the just physical requirements of, of caring for that animal um, for temperatures and housing and and, and, and cleaning the enclosure etc so yeah it's something I struggle with Mark um, and um, what's the answer should we be and I think um, um, uh, Anne mentioned in her talk um, in her presentation, she she basically said at the end of it, should we be keeping any animal as a pet? And um, with a question mark at the end of that sentence, and um, I agree, we need to st constantly reevaluate whether we should be doing this and whether we should be keeping them. Having said that, I've got my two greyhound um, rehome rescue dogs um, lying in the next room, and um, they seem quite um, content there. So yeah, I. Um, are you overthinking it, Nikki, as, as you mentioned in your last um, sentence? Um, I don't think so. Um, have we got the answers? No, but uh, uh, the good thing is um, more and more people are, are starting to think of these um, aspects and the ethics of keeping animals, and I think that's a good thing. The other thing I think too is that it's a, an excellent um you know, thought frame, framing process. I think that um, you, you, I know both you and I, and uh, and I'm assuming Nikki think about these things a lot. And I think it's um, the nature, our problem solving nature as veterinarians leads us to contemplate the problems. We focus on you know the the issues that are not working rather than the things that are going well. And I really think um, it helps me a lot to focus on. Um, the successes, the fact that you have been able to talk to someone and uh, and discuss the the, um, the psychological needs of uh, various animals and and the purpose for which people are keeping them, the the reason that they want to 
um, share their house with these animals and um, and then to um, talk to them about ways that um, that they can maximise that animal's quality of life and um, and as, just as you described, I think um, uh, trying to convey large amounts of husbandry information and environmental enrichment, understanding the peculiarities of that species. I think um, we are so well placed to do that stuff, um, and I I. Um, don't think um, I'm overstating it to say that uh, anyone like Nikki who is um, committed to passing that husbandry information on has already enhanced the quality of life of many of those animals dramatically already and I think we should um, yeah, focus on those positives sometimes to make sure that we don't do our head in and and uh, and worry about things that... Um, Yep, sometimes so overwhelming. The bad news is, Nikki. Yeah, I think we need to broaden it f- for more than just the exotics, and we need to think about potentially all the other species that we deal with as well. So that may not help you, and it might push you over the edge um, to to get it getting out of veterinary science, but hopefully not. Um, so yeah, thanks for the message, Nikki. And yeah, we welcome any emails or messages um, via our, the vetgurus.com website. See is this way to get in touch with us, and just see the links there. Um, and we welcome topics too. Um, we're going to get on to our main topic um, um, shortly, Mark, but I've got a quick little book review, um, and it is the new edition, which was released in late 2017, so a few months ago, the fifth edition of the Exotic Animal Formulary, um, so sort of the Bible for all us unusual and exotic pet vets as far as um, um medications um and yeah it's a really look flicking through it now in front of me it's almost 700 pages worth now a little softback book that i'm constantly referring to um and they've expanded it a a, a lot um in this fifth edition not only with the species that it also deals with but also some of the other selected topics that it has at the end of the end of the book i've found probably as um useful as as the actual um indicate um dose rates that it has for the majority of the book and that includes um, sections like the classifications of antimicrobials um, what type of antibiotic you may consider using for particular problems in exotic pets um, selected um, selected websites um, it has at the the back Um, um, one of the one of the bits that I didn't like is that um, one of the tables table 15.5 is selected laboratories for conducting exotic animal diagnostic procedures so it's labs that you can you can send your samples to for testing whether it be um, virology um, or, or, or specific um, um, tests for, for some of the exotic species um, the bad news with that is it's very um, US centric there and I think flicking through it I think every um, lab that's listed in here is um, um, USA um, labs and there's no international labs in there so that's a bit disappointing um, for us outside the USA um, but apart from that it's still a you know a must-have for anybody who has unusual pets and we'll have the link to that um, particular textbook um, it also has um, conversion factors for your bio um, for your clinical pathology um, has a list of compounding pharmacies as well but again they're just phone numbers for the USA um, compounding pharmacies there so um, uh, no use to me so I'm going to rip out that page um, right this minute um, you probably want me to give it a score out of 10 don't you Mark um, I can't give it a 10 because it because it tends to be it's not um, as international as I would like but having said that I still need to give it a 8.8 out of 10 because it's an excellent resource. Excellent resource. Um, so, yeah, the Exotic Animal Formulae, James Carpenter's Exotic Animal Formulae, 5th edition. And, um, yeah, we'll have the link on our website about from a couple of places. You can buy it from at a discounted price. Um, so let's jump into our main topic, and that's one that we very commonly get questions about in my clinic and I know you do too Mark and it's a a general condition and that is as you may um, realize from the um, title of this podcast it is gastrointestinal stasis or gut stasis or um, ileus Um, there's various terms that people throw around um, with it um, that we see in, in bunnies, in rabbits, Mark. So I think you should kick off with um, 
talk about how often you see gut stasis in rabbits and and what are the classic signs, you know. So for vets who aren't seeing rabbits too often but they need to know um, what to look for, when to worry when, when a rabbit has GI stasis. Well, you're exactly, it is a really important thing for vets who don't see rabbits very frequently to know about because um, it is so common that you don't have to see too many rabbits before you will see a case of gastrointestinal stasis. Um, I would say that at our hospital, we would have at least mm, at least four cases a week. There might be one day we don't have one, um, but um, but it is a routine thing for us to deal with. And the most common uh, scenario um, is that um, it's actually a really interesting thing how our rabbit clients have, uh, over the last uh, few years, become increasingly savvy uh, to the signs. And so our rabbit clients are just, you know, excellent at um, identifying the issues and uh, being very uh, very quick to make contact and formulate a bit of a plan, get uh, their rabbit to us and let us start doing things. But the, um, the classic things that we sort of see in the very early stages are um, just a rabbit being out of sorts and off their food. Now, um, rabbits are conveyor belts of fibrous grassy material they put it in one end and it comes out the other end um, and if there's any particular length of time that um, that that process is not going on um, as in the gut slows down um, then there's fairly profound metabolic changes and fairly significant pain um, and so the rabbits uh, change behavior they become um, lethargic they'll often rest in a single place they often um, go to places in the house if they're a house rabbit that they don't usually go often uh, hiding away behind lounges or underneath uh, cupboards um, and they are very difficult to encourage to eat or drink because of the pain um, so uh, they're often um uh, a little bit vague. Um, so in those clients that might be new to rabbits, um, they might, uh, the, you know, the, the rabbits certainly are not screaming out in pain. Um, uh, like many of our exotic animals, they conceal those. They work hard to conceal those signs so they don't look vulnerable to predators. Um, and so to many of our new clients, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll often... Um, just report that um, the rabbits are not doing the usual thing and not eating their food. Um, but um, but certainly uh, that pain is one of the main things that we are Yeah, and, it, and we probably see process. just as many as, 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 as you as far as um, per week with, with rabbits with gut stasis. So I think the key, the key point there that you, um, that you mentioned is um, it's common and that also um, you need to be on the lookout for for any rabbit that's stressed out because the next bit we want we need to talk about is um, why would they get it and, and not just what the clinical signs there and it's any rabbit that's stressed and, and that could literally be a rabbit that just goes to the vet clinic for, for a health check or even a weigh-in um, and, and to get weighed. Um, um, let alone a rabbit that's um, in for a vaccination or, or a bit of a um, health check. Um, it may get stressed out enough from that visit that when it gets home it then doesn't eat for the next 12, 24 hours. And we, for those of you as who deal with rabbits all the time, we worry if a rabbit hasn't eaten or, or hasn't pooped for, you know, 12 hours, probably even less than that because they need to be constantly eating and pooing. Um, so we need to be on the lookout for gut stasis um, with with all our rabbits, all our rabbits. And, and yeah, I, I think there's a close association with um, particular rabbits that are highly strung um, that, that are prone to getting the gut stasis. And, and um, we have good clients too that have some of these um, rabbits that are really prone to the gut stasis that the client's so switched on um, that we have um, 
we, we do dispense some medication to those clients that they can have at home because we know that that particular rabbit will have another episode of gut stasis again within the next few weeks or few months because it's just such a stressy rabbit. And some minor change of things at home. Um, it may be something as simple as a uh, abnormal routine of, of, of the humans in the house um, can set it off and, and start a gut stasis where that rabbit stops eating and the clients will have the, the medications at home uh, um, for the supportive care and they'll get stuck into that straight away. They usually, we do tell them to give us a call at the clinic and if they're a very sensible client um, that we trust with with giving the medications or the supportive care at home, we will um, then say, yeah, go ahead and give, give the product at home and they'll catch it at the, at the pass and they'll manage to stop that um, gut stasis happening as a, as a full-blown gut stasis and we may not need to see that animal back in the clinic um, for the treatment. So I think we should jump on to um, what sorts of things we do with these rabbits for gut stasis and, and Mark, if you could just outline the, the three or four or five or however many we end up with main treatment um, aspects of it so what do we do what's the main factors with with treating the gut stasis and uh, um, you know the first one I, I think we should talk about is is, is fluid therapy and um, what options have we got with the fluid therapy with the mark what do you do with your standard if we if we can call some, something a, a standard gut stasis that's not too too, too full-blown or too critically ill um, what's your standard fluid um, treatment for that particular animal Well, we work our way through several steps with these animals and probably in the first instance, like most exotic animals, um, if we can uh, access the normal route through which fluid would go, um, rather than leap immediately to subcutaneous or intravenous or intraosseous fluids, um, if we can get stuff in the, the front end and the rabbit um, feels comfortable enough to swallow it, um, then that's going to be the least stressful and most effective way of, um, of uh, getting fluid into our rabbits. And so our usual first step is to combine some fluid um, with uh, um, a uh, critical care food, um, which uh, obviously puts some fibre into the front end of the rabbit as well um, and uh, encourages the initiation of gastrointestinal contractions as uh, the physical mass of um, the food slurry, water and, and critical care gets to the stomach. Um, and and we use that as our initial technique to um, to get fluid into the rabbit. It, does, it is a little bit, um, uh, well, it's important to, uh, to be aware that, that not every rabbit's going to be able, you know, it takes some time, it takes some handling. And, and I think it, one of the things I feel really proud of the nurses that I work with is that they're exceptionally good at sensing, um, you know, that this particular method's not working, that, um, that uh, the repeated um, 20 or 30 or 40 mils of critical care that we're getting in um, each half an hour or hour is really not uh, making the rabbit happy. Um, there are some rabbits that just love the taste of critical care and it seems to be no problem. There are others where we have to leave, leave, leave oral fluids and head towards parenteral fluids to make sure that... Uh, that that rabbit stays hydrated, and of course, if they're de if they if we don't pay attention and they are dehydrated, it just magnifies the the uh, issues in their gut. So as you highlighted, it's the first thing that we want to make yep. sure. And I think right uh, that, that point about um, and it's what a throwaway line that I certainly didn't invent, but um, if the mouth works, use it. Um, really applies for for most animals with um, if not all animals with. Um, with um, rehydration and, and, and fluid therapy. So if the animal's well enough um, to, to give oral um, fluids, then you give it orally, um, and it's that simple. Um, yeah, and, and sure. So, Brendan, I've got a question, quick question for you while we're talking about fluids. Um, I've steered away from using the ear veins as uh, access ports for intravenous fluid therapy. I have had a couple of um, colleagues over the years who found though that location their favoured one, um, but um, but I tend to go for the cephalic vein. Um, which 
venous intravenous access location do um, you use? I use and, both. And I why? must admit I don't. Um, if if there's a preference, it would probably be the ear vein uh, for these particular cases. Um, for prolonged um, prolonged surgeries, I, I do use the cephalic a bit. Um, the, the other vets who work um, at, at my practice tend to use the ear vein almost exclusively. Um, and they're very good at um, putting a little port in, in most, if not all, rabbits that are anaesthetised there. I tend to be a bit of a, a bit slack and, and tend not to put a bit of a, a catheter in that, um, in any vein, um, which I should be with any rabbit that's anaesthetised there. So um, I, I do a bit of both. I mean, is there any particular reason why you don't go for the ear vein as much as you used to with um, the intravenous treatment? There is, there is indeed. Um, uh, there was, we have had one case where a rabbit uh, developed a phlebitis um, and then subsequently lost a significant portion of that ear as a result of the compromised um, arterial supply that was involved in you know, the scarring associated with the phlebitis. Um, and, uh, and, of course, the ear, you know, obviously stands out for the uh, rest of that rabbit's life and each time the owner looked at them um, uh, it uh, reminded them of the um, the time that they were in hospital so um, I, I, I uh, it's, it's been a sort of horror, horror story no it doesn't especially if it you make sure you don't go for that central ear artery um, so the first thing um, inexperienced vets will do will see the very the central ear artery or vein and that's the one that you shouldn't catheterize so making sure they go for the marginal ear, ear vein as far as um, catheterizing and there's I think everything once you get good at what you do all the time um, and especially the other vets that um, work in my practice they they've they do so many more of those IV um, placements than I do these days and, and they do a fantastic job and they've got it down pat and the nurses have um, um, have got everything ready to go and they've got a little padding system that they work with a with a bit of vet wrap and um, um, particular padding method they have to try and keep the, the ear supported when they have that catheter in there. So, yeah, I, I have seen rabbit ears that have um, partially sloughed off um, and... Um, Touchwood, the only ones that I've seen with that are, um, have been a, a few referral cases where they've um, been sent on to me because the, the referring vet or some other practices unfortunately had that experience that you had. Yeah. So we should stick to fluid therapy, Mark, and uh, I certainly do use subcutaneous fluids a lot in the what I call um, complicated um, gut stasis cases. Um, so getting back to basics, I think what we should be doing with these um, suspect gut stasis rabbits is getting some basic information from them apart from the clinical examination and that is getting a, a total protein, a, a PCV and also a blood glucose and I usually go for the marginal, uh, sorry, the lateral saphenous vein for that. And that gives us a really good idea on how unwell that particular rabbit is. And if those values are within normal limits, a large percentage of these rabbits, I just end up giving them a huge amount of subcut fluids, which I just have on a 20-gauge needle connected to a giving set and, and a bag of fluids. And we run those fluids into that rabbit subcutaneously. And the good news with rabbits is they've got lots of loose skin there, so it doesn't seem to hurt anywhere near as much as, say, giving subcut fluids to a rabbit that has really tight skin, say a guinea pig, for instance. Um, so that's what I tend to do with the fluids. Um, and you did mention a couple of the other options there, and that's intraosseous fluids. So for those of you us who work with exotics a fair bit, we tend to reach for um, intraosseous fluids as another method to try and get um, rapid um, fluids into them that will get absorbed reasonably quickly. And the final one I, I wouldn't mind mentioning, Mark, is all also um, using what we uh, mentioned in, in the equivalent in reptiles um, that I think in a previous podcast we mentioned about giving intrasolomic fluids in reptiles as a really easy, simple, safe um, method of getting fluids that will get absorbed fairly quickly. And we can do the same in our rabbits as well. So occasionally I have a rabbit that... I don't want to give subcutaneous fluids because they are absorbed more slowly than than um, intravenous or intraosseous fluids. But for some reason, I don't want to give intraosseous or or cannot give intraosseous or intravenous fluids. So I I go down the intra um, 
abdominal fluid um, route. Do you do that occasionally, Mark, or not? Yeah, definitely, Brendan. And um, and I do think um, both uh, subcutaneous and uh, intra-abdominal routes, um, I, when I first started doing these, I was always worried because they're so sensitive to all those painful stimuli um, and we're worried about how stressed they're going to be. I was worried about these things, but um, it certainly hasn't been an issue. Uh, I think the benefits of getting the fluid under the skin and into the rabbit or in to the abdomen um, vastly outweigh the, the, um, the, the additional risks to the rabbit. So, yep, we quite regularly in those more complicated cases that we can't go orally, um, we definitely use the subcutaneous route. Good. So the next topic, so we talk about getting fluids into them because we want to rehydrate them because what tends to happen, we think, with, with these gut stasis or ileus um, cases in rabbits is they tend to dehydrate because the body's trying to maintain its homeostasis with its fluid um, mechanisms and fl- fluid balance. Um, so um, the rabbit's not eating and probably not drinking, so it's not getting any any fluids into itself orally. So it tends they tend to draw more fluid out um, of their intestinal tracts to supply the circulation um so that's the reason why we're doing that um and the other big one there is the pain relief question mark and we get this question all the time from vets um who are inexperienced of dealing with rabbits and they would ring up and say um by the look of it the rabbit's in pain and they're uncomfortable when they have gut stasis and can we use an opioid in in this particular rabbit um or is it contraindicated because opiates or opioids um may cause um in certain in in some species a, a decrease in in peristalsis and gut function there so do we use them in rabbits mark we use them. We use them as much as we possibly can, Brent. There's <laughs> not a doubt in the world that, um, that well, I, I, I can't even tell you that we notice a decrease in gastrointestinal motility. It's not something that we associate with the opiates in uh, our rabbit patients. And it is just abundantly clear that if you um, rehydrate them and uh, are aggressive in pain relief um, that, uh, that 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 is like 80 or 90 percent of the treatment right there um, and so we are fairly um, keen to get um, uh, relatively high doses of um, of the opiates uh, um, often the mu agonists are our first choice and um, and yeah we, we we want these rabbits to be fairly happy um, about life and not feel any pain. That seems to be a really critical thing for us in the very early stages. Yeah, I agree totally. And and I and I don't think there is any great hard information out there saying that um, these these products do cause gut um, um, decreasing gut motility in rabbits. Um, you know, it's an area that needs further research but um from what little research has been done i don't think it um i don't think it's much a concern and we're much more worried about that rabbit feeling painful and therefore in in gut stasis um and getting rid of that pain um to help it recover than the potential side effects of giving that opiate if any side effects of gut um, motility with them yeah so we we fill them full of fluids and we fill them full full of pain pain relief mark and I think the third key factor with treating these um, gut stasis cases is trying to help that gut along. So are there any sort of motility agents that you use commonly in rabbits that help get that gut moving again? Um, We definitely – I've got two things to say about this, Brendan. There there are – um, several medications that um, that we routinely employ. Um, I, I I just want to emphasise that I think um, I know when I talk to uh, um, veterinary students or recent graduates, these are the medications that they tend to focus on. Um, and while I think they're important, I do think of them as an adjunct to those other things that we were talking about before. Um, so we will routinely use um, a combination probably of um, of three uh, medications. Um, we will uh, regularly use ranitidine um, uh, as one of the first medications that we use um, in uh, the, for both for decreasing uh, gastric um, 
the chance of gastric ulceration by uh, the excessive secretion of gastric acid. But also ranitidine does initiate some of those um, gastric contractions. Um, and, uh, and the rabbits that we've done post-mortems on, um, and we've even scoped a couple, um, they, they regularly have punctate ulcers in the stomach. And so um, we think that ranitidine is one of our first motility uh, um, modifiers and um, uh, gastric protectants that we want to use. We regularly use um, cisaprid, um, which uh, is a large bowel um, motility prokinetic, um, and um, and but we do find that um, uh, that that that's often the if we can start contractions there, um, that often makes a great difference. And finally, we add metoclopramide, um, uh, although that's of the three. While that's probably the most easily available in most practices, it's probably the one that I associate with the, the um, you know, least response. Um, so, uh, and and the other thing I would just quickly I mentioned um, the Oxbow product critical care before, um, and I think we should stick a little bit of a link in our uh, our notes to um, this product. Um, uh, it's a um, it, by placing, uh, by introducing, by assist feeding um, and introducing some physical mass into the stomach, um, that definitely adds to that whole process of initiating gastric contractions and starting normal motility through the gut. Um, and, uh, and we definitely, um, you know, it's uh, the critical care for herbivores from Oxbow is uh, a product that we would use every day in hospital and we send um, large amounts of it at home. Um, you were talking about the types of medications that these rabbit clients need to have at home, particularly those stressy bunnies. Um, and there are some medications that they should have on hand, but they should always have some critical care to use at home, I reckon, as well. Yes. Um, the the, the um, medications that you mentioned that I most commonly use in them or, or virtually every single case is, is definitely the ranitidine because I... I think there was a pretty good article that um, that um, compared the um, motility effects of, of, of these products and ranitidine was probably the the best by far as providing gut motility function um, even in the even in the even in the gut past the stomach as well I think Mark um, so that's the one I tend to always give to them and the other ones plus or minus I must admit I well, there's been a fair while since I've used um, metoclopramide in rabbits um, I used to basically give it to every single rabbit with gut stasis um but the more i've sort of looked into the potential evidence that's out there um there seems to be less and less evidence of, of as far as its effectiveness in rabbits i certainly don't think it does any harm but um i don't think it does too much good at all so i've, I've basically dropped off using metoclopramide with them um and um i don't think i've seen any decrease in the um um Success rate or an increase in the failure rate of the the gut stasis rabbits that I've that I've seen, and we use bucket loads of the critical care, so we we get that gut moving. Um, and if everything goes okay with um, these un uncomplicated gut stasis cases, and and they starting to pick up and 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 start, and, and we offer them tempting food from from the first minute they they're put into a hospital cage as well. So we, we'd go out the back and rip up some grass and wash that and wet it. So they've got some um, wet veggies and grass and 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 fresh hay um, that they've got in front of them as well. And and as soon as we start to see some of them eating that and that might be pretty quick quickly after we started the fluid therapy maybe within an hour or so that we started the fluid therapy and the, and the analgesic um, medication and the gut stimulants they might start having a bit of nibble on the, on their own and if they're starting to do that and definitely if they're starting to pass droppings out the other end and typically they're pretty dry and um, small initially um we try and get those rabbits out as soon as we can, even if they've only been in our clinic for a couple of hours because we're worried about the, the stress of being in the vet clinic um, is is greatly outweighed by the advantage of getting them home um, as soon as we can and um, closely monitoring them at home um, and getting it. Even if we send it home for a few hours, um, free roam in the in the lounge room or the, or the family room and then um, the owner 
giving us a call back and um, telling us how that um, rabbit's going and then um, popping that rabbit back in for another quick revisit later that uh, same day potentially or, or, or definitely the next day. So we try them. I, I try and get them back in their own environment as soon as we can um, with the ones as soon as we think they're stable enough and they're starting to have a bit of bit of a nibble um, by themselves on on the food that's put in front of them so that's sort of the approach that I do to them but um, yeah some of them can be it it can be quite complex dealing with some of these cases we're just talking about the the simple or what I term the uh, refer to as the uncomplicated um, gut stasis animals and these are the ones that are a bit of a stressy rabbit they've had a stressful event or or it's a rabbit that's highly strung who's prone to happening with them but for the other rabbits where it's a more serious episode of gut stasis we need to start thinking about why has that rabbit got gut stasis so start to think about what is the reason it's getting get in this secondary um, condition of the gut stasis and what else is wrong with the rabbit, Um, a bit like what we're talking about with some of the ectoparasites um, in our last podcast, um, why is the immune system of the rabbit um, being knocked around or why is that rabbit stressed um, and ended up with a gut stasis? So um, look and think with any rabbit that has a gut stasis and start to think, is there other disease conditions going on in this rabbit? Um, are there any other sort of things we've missed, Mark, you think, with the basics of gut stasis and or ileus treatment in rabbits? Well, I had one question for you, Brendan, and um, and it alludes to, it le- arises from the things that you've, um, you've just talked about. Um, it's definitely the case in our practice that um, while there are, you know, a wide variety of stresses that, uh, lead to gut stasis episodes. There is one thing that we see more, more frequently the other than than probably anything else, and it's certainly the first thing we want to rule out whenever we have a, a rabbit that has an episode of gut stasis, um, and that's uh, dental disease. We definitely there's a, a disproportionate number of rabbits that have spurs that are you know, have reached the stage where they're sticking into the tongue or the cheek or um, there's a, um, a osteomyelitis at the root at one of the teeth. Um, this is um, not always, but certainly it's one of the things we want to rule out early in the process. Do you see a large number of these um, oral disease rabbits uh, most most definitely and it's probably the first thing i think about with um especially say a new client that brings a rabbit in for gut stasis um and we'd be treating that as a as an emergency excuse me an emergency um and we would um immediately as part of my brief clinical examination before we start to stabilize that that rabbit or we'll be checking the teeth and having a quick look in the um, oral cavity of that rabbit and yes i I think a large percentage of those those rabbits that have some some other underlying Ill, illness there. Excuse me, I got the hiccups. I've just tried to swallow a huge glass of water there. No, Mark, it isn't um, an alcoholic beverage. Um, Maybe it should be, Brent. <laughs> perhaps it should. Perhaps it should. Um, is um, dental disease? Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah, we see lots of these gut stasis rabbits that have underlying dental disease. So it's it's a it's a good point there. You need to um, um, start thinking about dental disease when you see the gut gut stasis rabbits. Um, there is one other thing I was going to mention um, that I that I that I um, emphasise to the clients w- with their rabbits that are recovering from gut stasis is you need to get those rabbits um, hopping around and moving around because it's thought that the movement of, of rabbits um, hopping or running or jumping around um, has a has an action or a function to play with um, um, normal gut um, function. So you don't want that rabbit just confined in a tiny little cage. I, when they get home, I tell the client to let them loose out of their hutch in their in their um, inside a, a family room or a laundry, and um, with lots of food down there, and, and encourage them to move around um, as well. So that's the other thing I I, um, I can think of off, off the top of my head. But we see lots and lots of gut stasis in in rabbits. That's 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 for sure. So um, the other key thing that um, another one I've just remembered is um, what other sort of anti-inflammatories or pain relief um, medications we use or potentially use. And, and the main one that people tend to reach for is uh, meloxicam. Um, and 
we do use that a lot with the, these gut stasis with the proviso that we are trying making sure that the animal is properly hydrated so don't just give it a jab of uh, meloxicam or, or, or oral meloxicam to a rabbit with gut stasis when it's first come in without assessing the hydration status of that rabbit. Do you dispense or use much meloxicam in these gut stasis rabbits, mate? We do use a lot of meloxicam and, um, and as well as being conscious of the possibility of those uh, gastric ulcers, um, we're also, uh, you know, we are aware that they're dehydrated animals and um, that's the worst time to use non-steroidals. And, and I think what happens with the rabbits is that I, I can't ever tell you that I've had one develop a uh, problem with kidney disease at that time, but we know that a lot of our rabbits, as they get to their very senior years, Renal, uh, renal failure is a very common thing that we see. And I think um, some of these rabbits that uh, get meloxicam when they're dehydrated probably are more likely to get uh, renal disease as they age at an earlier stage. So much the same as you, we, we want to make sure they're well hydrated. We use relatively high doses compared to dogs and cats. It often scares our uh, our colleagues when they call up and ask us how they're going to treat their cases and we suggest to them a relatively high dose of meloxicam. Um, but as long as they're well hydrated um, and we're otherwise happy that they're recovering, we, we uh, definitely employ the analgesic and anti-inflammatory effects of meloxicam. Yep, exactly what we do as well, Mark. So there we go. Well, I think we've just about run out of time. Um, we had another... Another bit of an interesting um, technical issue halfway through this podcast, which is only the second time that that's happened, but um, that's the way things go. But it was only a minor, minor glitch there. And um, for those of you who are listening very carefully to the podcast, you might be able to tell us at what point during the podcast that that happened. Um, and if you can get it down to the exact second... Um, and you send us an email or a shout-out on our Facebook site about it, then there'll be a prize up for grabs for that, Mark. How about that? About time we started giving away something. I have no idea what we're going to give away. Um, and because Mr. Outro Man has kicked in already, I think um, we will um, talk about it next podcast. So thanks for listening, and we thanks will talk to you next to time. The vet podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.